Hello and welcome to this next installment of our Basics series. And I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. We will be reading verses 23 through 27 of that chapter. And then we're going to go to Mark chapter 4. And then we'll wrap up with Luke chapter 8 as we look at the parallel accounts of a very familiar story, a very familiar account from the life of Christ. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23. The Bible says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? Now turn over to the next book. After Matthew comes Mark chapter 4. And we will pick up the reading in verse 35. Mark 4, beginning in verse 35, again the Word of God says, On that day, when evening had come, He said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took Him with them in the boat, just as He was. And other boats were with Him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? One more. The next book is Luke. After Mark comes Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. And we will be reading verses 22 through 25 in Luke chapter 8. The Bible says, One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let's go across to the other side of the lake. And they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that, even, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Let us pray. We would see Jesus, Lord God. And so help us from 
this account, these parallel accounts of this incident from the life of Jesus, help us to see Him clearly, see who He is and why He is so special. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. We will be asking and answering a single question in this lesson. Why is Jesus so special? We have started, we started off with uh, bibliology, a study of the Bible, and then we moved to talk about the gospel. And now we move forward into Christology, study of Christ. You see, we believe that Jesus is special. That Jesus is unique. That He is unlike any other person who has walked the planet. But what is it that makes Jesus so special? Many things that Jesus said and did point to His unique character. His unique nature. Even this particular incident that's recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke shows us this is no mere man. He is a man, but He's more than a man. Who is this? That's the question the disciples are left with. It's the question that we are confronted with in this lesson. What sort of man is this? Now, I guess we should back up and give a brief word about method. You see, for information about Jesus, we need to go to the only source of reliable information concerning Jesus. And that is the Bible. Part of the reason why we started this series of lessons with a study about the Bible. It really comes down to the Bible. Without the Bible, we are left to either speculate or, skept or to be skeptical. Without the Bible, we're left to our own speculations. And when we do that, we invent our own ideas about Jesus and who He is and what He means. Without the Bible, we are left to skepticism, which ultimately dismisses truth altogether. There's no truth whatsoever. We can't believe anything. That's where radical skepticism leads. Speculations or skepticism. That is what remains if we reject and abandon Scripture. That's why the Bible is so important. Not only that, virtually everything we know about Jesus is found in Scripture. Specifically, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are given by God in order for us to have a clear view of Jesus. Of His life, His work, His ministry, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension back to heaven. So once again, we affirm the priority and the primacy of the Bible. That the, the Bible is the primary source of what we know about Jesus. And it must take priority over everything else. If for no, no other reason than by virtue of the sheer volume of material that is within the pages of Scripture compared to other secular sources. One writer said that there's actually no more than three paragraphs of material from, first from the first century outside of the New Testament. We are dependent upon the Bible, the New Testament, and the Gospel specifically for all of our information about Jesus. But even that lends itself to another question. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. A lot of material. Where do we begin? 
with so much material available, it can be difficult to know where to start. And several examples could be looked at. But I believe that this particular episode from the life of Jesus, where He calms the storm, I believe we can utilize this as a launching point for how to think about Jesus. Why Jesus is so special. It's a familiar story. It's found in all three of what are called the synoptic Gospels. Now synoptic, uh, break it down, optic has to do with the eye seeing. And the prefix there, sin, soon, has to do with with or together. And so we see together. It's, it's, it's meant for us to take Matthew, Mark, and Luke and to see together their individual portrait, but how that works together to form a fully orb view of the life, ministry, and work of Christ. And we've read all three accounts from Matthew, Mark, and Luke where Jesus calms the storm. So, what are we supposed to take away from this? Or what can we take away from these three sources of this one particular account from the life of Christ? I believe we see three things about Jesus. One, we see Jesus as Creator. Two, we see Jesus as Savior. And three, we see Jesus as Judge. Creator, Savior, Judge. As pertains to Jesus being Creator, we see that the wind and the waves, the very creation of God, sprout ears, as it were, to hear and obey the voice of their Maker. As it pertains to Jesus as Savior, isn't it? Didn't we read how Jesus, He's responding to the hopeless pleas of His disciples? Save us, Lord! We saw that in Matthew. And as it pertains to Jesus as judge, Jesus demonstrates the authority of His Word. His authority by commanding the winds and the waters to stop. It shows the inherent power, the inherent authority of His Word. Other names and other titles could be marshaled for us in this lesson concerning Jesus. And they do. They all point to Jesus' unique character and His unique nature. And those titles, they could be multiplied. There's so many that we won't be able to touch on. So many that are so important. Son of man, Son of God, Lord, Messiah. All of these are very important terms. And I want to invite you to, to continue to grow and to learn the, the difference between these titles and what they mean. But I believe these three. of Jesus as Creator, Savior, and Judge are sufficient to point us to a profound conclusion. That Jesus is God in human form. That Jesus is God in human nature. That Jesus is God who has come in the flesh. That Jesus is exactly who He claimed to be. God incarnate. It's this that makes Jesus so special. He's unlike any other person, any other man, because He is the God-man. Fully God, fully human. That's why Jesus is so special. And these 
three titles, they bring this to the forefront. Let's talk briefly about Jesus as the Creator. We know from Scripture that only God has the power to create everything from nothing. And yet, we have affirmative declarations throughout the New Testament. And I believe we see even here, the Gospel writers portraying Jesus as the Creator. He is showing His mastery over the creation itself. And who but the Creator would have that kind of sovereign power over the creation? That's the point of this particular narrative. Oh, we can talk about uh, how Jesus is in charge of the storms of our lives. He can calm the, whatever storm comes into our life. That's, I believe there's some value there. But really, this is not about us and what we go through, so much as it is about Jesus and who He is. He's the Creator. And it is at His voice that the winds and the waves obey and cease their raging. Elsewhere in the Bible, again, we have these affirmative declarations that it is by, through, and for Jesus that all things have been created. I'm mindful this evening of the book of Hebrews chapter 1. The book of Hebrews begins with a declaration of Jesus as the creator and also as the sustainer of the creation. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He created the world. There it is. He, that is the Son, Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power, or His powerful word. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's key in on that phrase. Through whom He created the world. But it's through the Son, God created the whole universe. The universe came into existence by the Word of God. We read about that and we believe that by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3 says that. The whole created universe is in view with that word, the world. All of space and time, everything that we see, came into existence through the Son. That is by agency of the Son. The Father created the universe through the Son. And this agrees with other statements about the Son that we find elsewhere in Scripture. I'm thinking about John chapter 1 and verse 3. How all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That's talking about Jesus. So Jesus is absolutely the Creator Taken together, it is the Word, it is Christ, it is the Son. He is given the status of Creator. Something that is exclusive to God, to deity. It is a role the Son shares with the Father. Because as the Father is God, so also the Son is God. I also think about Colossians chapter 1. 
and verse 16. The Bible says there, For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Again, talking about Jesus. Talking about God the Son. Through Christ. Everything was made. You see, there was a time when the earth, with its mountains, with its seas, with the winds, there was a time when even humans, with all their lofty thoughts, there was a time, if we can even talk about it as a time, when they did not exist. In eternity past, before Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created anything, they were the only ones that existed. In a perfect dynamic relationship of triune love with one another. And it was out of that love that they determined that they would create everything that we see around us. You see, we could even ask, well, where was Christ? Where was the sun before the mountains, the seas, and even humans? Where, where was the sun? The answer is, he was with God. And he was God. Loved by God. He shared in the glory of God, being God himself, the glorious God. John, by the way, says all of this. John chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 17, verse 5, also verse 24. That is where the Son was. And then came the time when everything was made. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, working together to bring everything out of nothing. And we could ask, where was Christ? Where was the Son? Well, as John says, all things were created by Him. Nothing that has been made was made without Him. We see here that all things were made, were created by Him, through Him, and for Him. Don't miss this. All things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible. Everything that we can see and everything that we can't see was made by Christ. We can see a lot of the creation. You can look around right where you are and you can see all kinds of things that, are, that have their origin, their source. They were created by God, ultimately. You could go outside and you could look at the sky. You can look at the sun, the moon, the stars, the land, the sea, the wind, the effects of the wind. You can see people. All things visible, created by Him. Then there are other things that we can't see. There are angels. There are demons. There's a whole spiritual realm that we don't see. Yet it exists. How about your soul? My soul? We are spiritual beings. We are more than just material machines. We have a soul. We have a spirit. That was created by Him as well. All things invisible created by Him. And don't miss that not only is He the source and the origin of all things, being the Creator, but Christ is also the goal of creation. Did you catch that? You see, the universe stands created for Him. All things were created 
through him and for him. You see, the chief end of all people and even all of the universe is to glorify God. It will have its end and aim in Christ. You see, God is at work in order to sum up all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1. It's all for Him. Christ will be and is glorified in His creation as the Creator. But He's also the sustainer. We saw that in Hebrews. We see it here as well. How all things hold together in Him. That's what verse 17 of Colossians 1 says. He upholds all things by His powerful Word. Christ is the sustainer of creation. Christ sustains the universe in its actual operation, one writer said. And by the way, it's easy for Him. That's how powerful He is. To hold together and sustain this entire universe is easy for Christ. So He is the author. He is the arranger. And He is the aim of all creation. He's supreme over it because He Himself is the Creator. And so when we read how the Creator, awakened from His sleep, stands in a boat and rebukes the wind, that is the Creator speaking to His creation. And His creation obeys Him. Which is useful for us. What is the proper thing that we are to offer to God as the special creation of God? You know, one of the accounts from the life of Jesus, they gave him a piece of money and they said, is it right for us to pay taxes? And he said, well, whose image is on this? And he said, well, it's Caesar's image. He said, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He answered their question by telling them, yeah, you've got to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But he always takes the next step. and He says, you need to give to God what's God's as well. And if this money bears the image of Caesar, well then whose image do you bear? You're made in His image. And so it is good, right, and proper for us to render to God the things that are God's. To give to our Creator what is His in the first place. Love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus Christ is the Creator. And that's why He is so special. That's what makes Him so special. He's your Creator. He's my Creator. But then we take the next step. And again, we see from this account, from the life of Christ, that He is the Savior. We read in Matthew's account how part of what the disciples say in the other accounts, the emphasis is on the, the perishing. We're perishing. They all say that. But here in Matthew, chapter 8 and verse 25, they begin by saying, Save us, Lord. Oh, now that is interesting, even that. The, the term, the title, Lord. And I don't have time to unpack all of the significance of that term. But suffice it to say that that was the word that was utilized in the Hebrew Bible when they translated it from Hebrew into Greek. The term in the original, kurios, that was utilized to translate the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. So save us, Lord. Mm. Do they understand what they're saying, right? 
And yet we know that the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh is His name. He is the one who put on flesh to dwell among us. All throughout the Bible, it is understood that this God, Yahweh God, is the only one who can save. There are no other gods. There are no other ways for salvation. And so, for them to call upon Jesus as Lord, save us, that is a, a profound thing. We read back in Hebrews chapter 1 how Jesus made purification for sin. He made purification for sins. And so we go from the cosmic scope of He's the Creator, and we move very quickly. The, he, the writer of Hebrews has no problem. Then moving to Christ as the one who saves and redeems people from sin. Purifies a people from sin. The writer of Hebrews moves to the completed work of God the Son in time, space, in history. On the cross. Through His death, Jesus made purification for sins. Now it is true that the intercessory work of Christ continues on for His people, and it will continue on until the end of time. But this is written in the past tense. You even hear it in the English. He made purification. And in fact, in the original language, it's a, what's called an aorist tense verb, and that just has to do with a snapshot event in history in the past. And that snapshot event, that point in time that the writer of Hebrews has in mind is the cross. On the cross, Jesus made purification for sins. He completed His work. That's why the last thing He says, one of the last things He says on the cross is, it is finished. The work of Christ in making purification for sins is completed on the cross. There is nothing more that can be added. Jesus paid it all. He paid our debt, our sin debt, in full. All of our sins. Completely purified. Washed away. How? By what? By the blood of Jesus. Blood of God the Son. In fact, it's because Jesus, the Son, because He is fully God, He's able to save to the uttermost the ones coming to God or the ones drawing near to God through Him. It is only because He is God that He's able to do that. You see, it is the Son and it is no other who provides purification for sins. One of the themes that the writer of Hebrews picks up on throughout his book is how Jesus is our great high priest. And the writer will work that out in his epistle, but it, it, it pertains primarily to the work of Christ on behalf of His people. As the one who makes purification, who takes care of all of our sins by His blood. Again, why is it that Jesus is able to do that? It's because Jesus, as God, was the only sacrifice for sin, and He's the perfect sacrifice for human redemption. 
as 100% human, in his human nature, he is able to die. He's able to sympathize with us in our temptations. He suffered in temptation as well. The writer of Hebrews will draw that out in chapter 2, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 15 as well. But primarily, it's because of his human nature that he's able to experience death. Well, he's able to say, I died in Revelation chapter 1. But also, as 100% God, he is the God-sized solution to our sin problem. No other human being can die for your sins or mine. No person, as merely a person, as merely a human, is able to die for anyone's sins. But Jesus Christ, as fully human and fully God, is the absolute perfect sacrifice for sin. Also as God, He's sinless. He never sinned. He was tempted without a doubt. In all points, just as we are. And yet, without sin. He was sinless. And therefore, He was the only acceptable sacrifice which could satisfy the wrath of God upon sin. So to reduce Jesus to less than God, maybe half God, half human, some kind of divine hybrid, that does injustice to the gospel message. To reduce Jesus to no God at all. Now you are surrendering the only sacrifice that's able to save and save to the uttermost. Only God in the flesh on the cross for our sins. Only God is able to save completely in that way. It's the only way. You cannot be saved by anything less than that divine sacrifice. Precious blood of God the Son is able to save us perfectly and completely. To give us an eternal redemption, as the writer of Hebrews says. Praise God for Jesus as our perfect Savior. That's why Jesus is so special. Because He is the only one who can be our Savior. There are is no other sacrifice for sin except through Jesus Christ. Well, one more that we see here in this account as we come back to the Gospels and, the, and Jesus calming the storm, we see that it is at His Word that He rebukes the, the storm. In fact, it's Luke who draws this out in chapter 8 and verse 25, the disciples are asking, who then is this? That He commands. The term there for commands. Very significant. But who is it that He commands even winds and water? And they obey. Now just like with Creator, how God is the only one who can create from nothing. And just like how Savior, God is the only one who can save. So also when it comes to judge, God, it is understood God is the only one who has final responsibility for judgment of all human beings. It's God. And so to say that Jesus Christ is judge, again, is to say a very significant thing. Only God has the authority to issue a command concerning His creation. Whether it's winds and waves, stop, be still. Or whether it's humans, where He commands 
is faithful to enter into the joy for uh, prepared before us, or depart from me, I never knew you. So when Luke emphasizes that Jesus commands even winds and water, he's intentionally drawing attention to Jesus' word as having inherent authority. In fact, here's a, a fun little exercise for you. Just in chapter 8, go through and, and read all of Luke chapter 8 and underline every time you come across a word like hear or hearing, a word like command or commanded, called, said, and just notice how, how often those words show up. And, and there's, a, there's a pattern there, and I believe Luke intentionally does this. To, again, draw attention to the inherent authority of Jesus' word. A couple of things. The Bible says that Jesus has been appointed by God to judge the world. In the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10, verses 40 to 42. When Peter is talking with Cornelius, a God-fearer, Concerning salvation for him and his family, talking to this man about Jesus and sharing with him the gospel. One thing that Peter says, he says, God raised him, Jesus, on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify, listen closely, that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Did you hear it? God has appointed Jesus to be judge of the living and the dead. Or your translation may say, God has ordained Him. That's a good word too. Based on His resurrection from the dead, Christ is the God-ordained judge of the world. God, as it were, handpicked Jesus. He appointed Jesus to be judge of the living and the dead. That is, those who will be alive when He comes and those who died before He comes. Or, I guess we could summarize it in a word, everyone. That phrase, the living and the dead, is supposed to capture everyone uh, who has ever lived or died, right? So, that would be everyone. So, it will be Jesus who reveals the secret thoughts and intentions of people's hearts on the last day. It will be Jesus, the one who died for you and for me. It will be Jesus to whom we must stand before and give an account on the judgment day. As He has been appointed as judge of the world. But you know, He may be appointed, but has He been authorized to wield that kind of power? The Bible says that Jesus has been authorized by God to judge the world. John chapter 5 and verse 22, John writes, For the Father, Jesus talking here, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 27, And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Jesus Himself says, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, That all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. It is the Son's, God the Son's authority. And so the Father has given the Son 
that authority to execute judgment so that all people may honor the Son. And everyone will. Either confess Jesus in time to their salvation, or they will confess Him at the end of time to their condemnation. Everyone will honor the Son as Lord. So Jesus, He has the authority. He has the right to judge every person. Someone may say, well, only God can judge me. That's right. And Jesus is uniquely qualified as God the Son to know not only the mind of the Father, but also to know the frailty of humanity, since He is both God and man, as we've been talking about. God the Son, who put on flesh, lived among us, died on the cross, was raised three days later, and has ascended to the Father's right hand. He will judge the living and the dead. He will judge all people, and He will do it in righteousness and in faithfulness. For this, Psalm 96, beginning in verse 12, the middle of verse 12, says, Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. And you will notice, Lord, there is all caps. That is the proper name of God, Yahweh. Whenever you see that in your Old Testament, that's the Hebrew term, the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. For He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Listen, it is not a matter of if, it is a matter of when the Son judges. It's not maybe or perhaps. We see here, God will judge the world. God will judge all people. But unlike human judgment, your judgment, my judgment, Unlike our judgment, which can be and often is flawed, incomplete, erroneous, His judgment is in righteousness. That is, it is right, it is just, it is not prone to corruption, flaw, error, mistake, any of that. And also, it's in His faithfulness. That is, it will be in truth, it will be in honesty and integrity, there will be no favoritism, no partiality whatsoever. Righteousness and faithfulness will be shown to everybody at the judgment. It will be Jesus Christ who will be our judge. Creator, Savior, Judge. You know, there, there is no gospel if Jesus is not God. What makes the gospel good news is that God came near died for your sins and mine, and for all who are willing to bow the knee to King Jesus. That He is the Creator and the Savior and the Judge. That all proves and points to His deity. He is 100% fully God, while at the same time being 100% fully human. Those two natures, the divine and human nature, meeting together in the single person of Jesus Christ. Some may say, well, you know, Jesus, yeah, okay, he was a good man. How is there any good news if Jesus was merely a good man? Other men have been good men, however we may define that. But their death didn't count for the eternal salvation of even a single soul. So if Jesus is merely a good man, then he dies just like any other good man. 
No, that simply will not do. He is more than just a man. Others may say, well, he's a great prophet. But how is that good news? If Jesus is merely a a great prophet, there have been other great prophets before him. But no person was redeemed from evil by the mere prophetic utterance. The Gospels tell us Jesus, fully human, but also fully God. And you need both of those if there would be any good news. But also the Gospel doesn't, it not only tells us about Jesus, it tells us the truth about who He is. The Gospels also tell us how people responded to Jesus during His earthly ministry. People either respond favorably to Jesus or disfavorably. They either respond for Jesus or they respond against Jesus. There is no middle ground. Both responses, by the way, have bearing on this life and the next. You see, a decision for Jesus that results in us living for Jesus, obeying Him in all things, but also grieving sin in our life. It results in praying and reading our Bibles and and seeking to look like Jesus more and more the longer we live life with God. Such a life that leads to eternity with God forever in heaven. A decision, on the other hand, a decision against Jesus, that means refusing to acknowledge Him in your life. It means not living for Jesus which will result in disobedience and sin and living life the way you want rather than the way God wants. And such a path leads inexorably to eternity away from the presence of God. We've taken time to ask and answer the question, why is Jesus so special? But now the question remains, what do you say? about Jesus. See, a lot is at stake. Much is at stake. Well, maybe everything is at stake in how we answer that question. Because it reveals not only how we understand who Jesus is, but also what that means for life here and now and also for eternity. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank You that we can see clearly Jesus through the Word that You have provided for us. And we pray that knowing and understanding who Jesus is, we would in turn go and tell others the good news. God has come near on our behalf. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.